Okay. Okay, you can hear me. All right, so I'd like to welcome you all. And I'd like to begin with a short sitting so that all of us can fully land here. As the sign said when you were driving in, yield to the present. So I invite you to practice whatever meditation practice you use. And if you don't have one, to focus on your belly and the movement of the breath in your belly. So I'll ring the bell to begin the sitting and then to come out and then we'll start our workshop.
Okay, so to begin, I'd like to find out how many people, can, you can't hear me in the back, okay. Can you hear me now? Is that good? Okay, at any time, if you can't hear, just let us know. So I'd like to begin by finding out how many people know absolutely nothing about the Enneagram. Okay, so we have a few people. All right. Um, how many people know absolutely nothing about me? Okay, all right. Okay. So I'll start there. I, my name is Sandra Maitri, and I began working with the Enneagram as part of my initiation into spiritual work 40 years ago now, beginning in 1970, when I began to study with Claudio Naranjo, who was a Chilean psychiatrist and one of the um, leaders of the human potential movement. And Claudio had just returned from working with Oscar Ichazo in uh, Arica, Chile. And it was from Ichazo that he learned the Enneagram, the map of the Enneagram. The Enneagram is basically a system of nine different ego types, personality structures. And it's an archetypal one in the sense that it seems to be applicable to everybody. Claudio was a great, is a great synthesizer. He's still around. He's a great synthesizer of spirituality and psychology. And he was one of the trailblazers in that beginning integration. And so in the work that we did with him for approximately four years, we used the map of the Enneagram as the primary psychological component for understanding ourselves. And um, our work got into meditation and um, deeper levels of reality. Um, after the, that initial four years, the teaching of the Enneagram started to get popularized, um, largely through the work of Helen Palmer, who studied the Enneagram a little <laughs> bit with Claudio, but mostly through one of my other group members in that original SOT group. And uh, likewise, Don Rizzo and Russ Hudson are responsible for a whole other branch of popularization. 
and dissemination of the map, and that happened through a Jesuit priest who was part of the original group and then took the teaching into the Jesuit community, which is how they got in touch with it. So, let's see. Um, one of my other colleagues in that group was Hamid Ali, who writes under the name of A.H. Almas and is the founder of the Diamond Approach. And Hamid, in later years, after our work with Claudio, went on to start the Diamond Approach to begin the Ridwan School. And he added to the understanding of the Enneagram in terms of clarifying what the holy ideas represent. A lot of what we got from Claudio was a kind of code, and being the five that he is, uh, a lot of the material wasn't so obvious, and we needed to do a lot of digging and exploring into our own self-understanding to really get what the um, language of the Enneagram, which is a kind of code, I think, what, what that code meant. And so Hamid amplified the teaching of the holy ideas, which you'll see in his book called Facets of Unity. And uh, he also amplified the understanding of the inner flow of the Enneagram, which is what we're going to focus on this weekend. The inner flow, as you'll see in the diagram that we handed out, is the inner dynamics of the map. And it basically translates into understanding how we defend ourselves more completely and what parts of ourselves we need to make conscious in order for our process to deepen. So my hope in this weekend is to give you... Does everyone have that diagram? Okay, so it's coming. It's coming to you. My hope in this weekend is to give you some tools to begin to experientially... Okay, we need some more diagrams up front here, please. So my hope is to give you some tools to experientially grasp. I think we need a few more. Okay. Okay, we'll get some more and we'll pass them out. So in the meantime, if you can just, if you can share them with your neighbors, that would be great. So my hope in this weekend is to give you some ways of understanding what the inner flow is all about, and how it applies to your, your own process. 
your own self-understanding. The, um, let's see, where shall I start? So the nine enneotypes On the one hand, they're very specific. We each have one enneotype. In the later teaching of Ichazos, he speaks of a secondary enneotype and sometimes a tertiary enneotype. But we basically have one primary enneotype that doesn't change throughout our lifetime. And implicit in that enneotype is movement forward, going with the, the, the arrow um, to the next point beyond ours. So if we follow the arrows in the diagram that you have, there's a natural movement toward over here, the point following ours. And there's also a movement toward the point moving against the arrow, moving backward one point. And it's that dynamic that we're going to explore. So to begin with, I'll talk about each of the types and the movement with the arrows and what that represents. Let me see if there's anything else basic about the Enneagram that I should be telling you. Um, the, a lot of the ways that the Enneagram has become popularized and used focuses exclusively on the personality on our psychology. And the reason that I started to write about it was to bring in the spiritual dimension of it. The fact that its initial purpose always was to help people reconnect with their being, with true nature. And so focusing simply on the dynamics of our personality is all well and good. It's interesting. But that's not the ultimate purpose for which this map was taught. The um, roots of the Enneagram go back as far as we can tell, to a school in Central Asia, curiously in Afghanistan, that very embattled country at this point. Uh, Gurdjieff, who was the first to use the symbol of the Enneagram in the West, talked about the Sarmun Brotherhood, which was a mystery school, a Sufi mystery school. And the Gurdjieffians have attempted to find the Sarmun. Nobody has been able to find any traces. So as a mystery school, perhaps they stayed very, very mysterious <laughs> to stay hidden. 
And that's really the way spiritual work was up until our age. You had to go to great lengths to find spiritual teachers. And I think it's because of the great need that humanity and the planet has at this point that the teachings are widely available. So my wish is that you can take this teaching and use it and that it supports your contact with who you really are. Your enneotype is a map of the pattern of your personality structure. It is not your true nature. It is not who you ultimately are. Your enneotype is a pattern shared Theoretically, nobody's done the statistics, but by a ninth of the world's population. So it's not really personal to you. Even though we take the characteristics, the emotions, the behaviors, and all of that to be us that our our enneotype describes. So hopefully this weekend you'll get a little bit of wiggle room in that identification such that it loosens up a little bit. So to begin with, this morning we're going to talk about the movement going with the arrows and what that represents. There's a natural logic to the flow from one point to the next within the Enneagram. Each of the Enneotypes is a way of coping, a way of dealing with, and really an attempt to rectify the loss of contact with our deepest nature. So basically what I'm saying is that our ego, our personality structure, developed hand-in-hand with the loss of contact with the ground of being. And our ego structure is an an attempt, an attempt that doesn't work very well, but nonetheless, an attempt to reclaim that ground. So we can think of each of the the strategies of each of the enneotypes as attempts to become whole, to become complete. Each of the enneotypes has a blind spot. That blind spot is a distorted view of reality. Beginning with point nine, the blind spot is one that characterizes all of the other enneotypes in which we're blind to the ground of being as who and what I am when we're identified with our ego. So point nine is considered in the map of the Enneagram the central 
eniotite, out of which all of the other eight refract. So the other eights, eight are variations on the theme of loss of contact with who and what we truly are. So the characteristics of nines have to do with sleepiness, laziness, not being in touch with oneself, having one's attention, when I say sleepiness, I mean that in the spiritual sense, of being asleep to who and what we are, and having our attention externally directed. So characteristic of nines is the tendency to understand other people really well, be able to see what they're experiencing, what they're like, and to have a lot of difficulty tuning into who I am, what I feel, what I think, what's important to me. So, if we understand that the loss of contact with being, and, and let me just back up a minute, the model that I'm using, the understanding that I have, is essentially that that we teach in the Diamond Approach. Um, I forgot the piece of my story, which is that after many years, um, lots of meditation experience, I began to work with my old friend Hamid, who had founded the Diamond Approach, and that's the work that I teach. So my orientation is very much that, and it's really an orientation that has built upon what we learned from Claudio. So my understanding where I'm coming from is that as newborns, we're basically in touch with everything. We're in touch with all of the dimensions of reality with being, with body, with our sensory experience, but without being able to reflect on that experience. The capacity to know what we're experiencing is something that develops gradually, psychologically. It requires the development of our nervous system such that we can know ourselves and reflect on our own experience. And that's actually something that doesn't fully crystallize until around the age of eight or nine. It's not until that point that we have a strong sense of self. So that sense of self that is such a, an obstacle in spiritual work, when we take that self to be ultimate, to be who and what we are, is a psychological achievement. If we don't have a strong sense of self, we're considered to be psychologically unprepared for living in the world. So spiritual work is about using the scaffolding 
of that self, which goes hand in hand with the capacity to know and to be conscious of who and what we are and what we're experiencing, to deconstruct what we've come to believe that we are. So, as we lose touch with the ground of being, bit by bit, which happens in concert with the development of our ego structure, our separate sense of self, which which isn't just a sudden thing, but a gradual development, we lose touch with what is the most precious part of ourselves we come to identify with a mental construct about who and what we are. And that's a pretty scary thing. And so the movement from nine to six reflects the fact that as we lose contact with the ground of being, we come to increasingly identify with our bodies as being ultimate reality, as the physical world, as being ultimate. And that's pretty scary. If there's no deeper ground than our bodies, then we're gone after our bodies stop. So we're vulnerable. Our existence is shaky. It has an end point. And so life becomes about survival. And it becomes about coping with existential fear of survival. And that's the specialty at point six. Dealing with our existential fear and that results from the identification with our body as a separate thing. So sixes being the quintessential fear type are vigilant, looking for danger, typically experience themselves as vulnerable, as potential prey for others. And it's very much a Darwinian jungle out there in the sixth consciousness. And so one can either be afraid or counterphobic, which is the other sixth style, countering the fear, attempting to prove I'm not afraid. Those of you familiar with the Enneagram know that there's lots of authority issues at six, point six. The looking for ground in the figure of some authority, or opposition to some authority, which is nonetheless the projection of authority onto that other. And so, let's see, as, let's see, how shall I talk about this? I think I'll talk about it first, just looking, helping you understand how one type leads to the other. And then we'll, we'll take it deeper. So if we're 
on our own here in the world, if there's no ground of being that we're in touch with, if there's no inner solidity that is absolutely invulnerable, that can't be destroyed, that didn't begin, didn't end, and is completely here regardless of the vicissitudes of our bodies, of catastrophes in the world, and so on, then the movement to three represents the belief that we have to do everything ourselves. It's up to me. And so the three enneotype is rooted in the belief that I'm on my own, I have to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, I create my own universe, and that I'm basically the one in charge of what happens. And this is the blind spot for threes. It's a blind spot that is a difficult one and one that we all share, believing that we make everything happen in our lives, when to an extent far greater than we realize, being is happening in our lives. Being is functioning. True nature is living our life. And it's not ultimately us making the choices about what happens to us. And I think we get a sense of that when we consider that none of us chose to be born consciously. We didn't make that happen. And none of us, unless we kill ourselves, determine the moment of our death. So we are not necessarily the major player here. Point three also represents the personality and our identification with it as the creation that the human soul comes up with that mirrors and reflects the ground of being that we've lost contact with. And that's a very important understanding in the work that I teach, that all of the characteristics of our ego structure imitate and mimic and replace qualities of our deepest nature that we've lost contact with. And that's important because if we stay with those facsimiles, those mirrors, those reflections, of who and what we really are, it'll lead us to who and what we really are. So the more completely that we're identified with what we do, with our achievements, with our personality structure itself, the more that we deepen our asleepness to the ground of being, and that's the movement from three back to nine. Okay?
So any questions thus far? Yeah, yeah. What I said is that the more completely that we identify with our ego structure as being who and what we are, the more cathexis in psychological terms that we give it, the more <coughs> identification that we have with it, the more that we're deepening our asleepness to the rest of the dimensionality of reality that's here all the time, that is our nature. That's what I was saying, three going back to nine, that to the extent that, um, well, l- let me go around that, the triangle in terms of how that works for people on the triangle. So the movement following the flow of the arrows from nine to six The tendency in nines, when they're defending themselves more completely, um, and I'm going to back up again, this point following our own type has been called in later teachings after those of Claudio's original ones, the stress point. And I would like for you to let go of that idea for this weekend because I don't think it's an accurate one. It's a partially accurate one. The reason I say that is that when we're under stress, sometimes we defend ourselves more, which is what the movement is to the point after ours. We become more defensive. We shore up our personality more, but sometimes we open up, we get more vulnerable, we see deeper truths about ourselves. So for some of us, when we go through a really traumatic life change, like an accident, or a divorce, or, you know, losing a job, and so on, we can either get more defended and shore our personality up, or we can open up more completely and be stripped down, basically, to what's going on at deeper levels of who we've taken ourselves to be, which is why very often those situations are blessings in disguise for us. So what I consider the point after ours to be is the defensive point. If we could think of the personality longitudinally, we have our enneotype here as this kind of central level. Psychologically, it's our central ego. It's who we take ourselves to be. The defensive point is another layer that we add on top of our enneotype 
as a way of supporting ourselves. So, and, and a way of understanding that is that we're really supporting the underlying reality that our enneotype is built upon. So the movement from nine to six is a movement in which, first of all, at point nine, we're convinced that we don't have what it takes. We're missing fundamental parts. And in fact, our consciousness is missing a very fundamental part, which is recognition of who and what we truly are, the ground of being. And that basic assumption about reality, that blind spot about reality, inevitably leads us to get paranoid. And that's the movement from nine to six, to be suspicious, to look for danger, to be distrustful. And often for nines, to get belligerent, to want to buck authority. And that movement isn't necessarily something that we act out. It might be just something that goes on in our own heads. And you'll see that with each of these movements from one point to the next. So the tendency, again, for nines in the movement to six is to get belligerent, to, um, uh, could be to get blindly loyal to some authority, whether it's an idea or a person, and to move into distrust, paranoia. Obviously, that's not a deeper movement into ourselves. It's a further externalization. Do you see that? Do you get that? Okay. So, at point six, in order to cope with the basic sense of being on shaky ground, being afraid of the conviction that the world is an insecure and scary place, and so am I, the natural movement to three is to get busy, to start doing stuff, and to begin to identify with one's activities and one's achievements. There's also a tendency that sixes get into to spin the truth, which is one of the specialties at point three, to shape shift, to change their story so that it's not something that's going to be met with a challenge. So sixes, you will see over and over again if you look closely, get into lying, basically, as a way to protect themselves, as a way to keep themselves safe. They also, as I said, stay busy, stay active. The movement from three to nine is something that we can understand if we consider that the busier we get, 
And the more invested in what we do, that we are, the more we tune out to what's going on inside of ourselves. And so often what you'll see or what you, what you can see if you attune to threes is a movement into lethargy, sleep, um, and darkenment, we could say. A deepening of the distractions of doing. So a tendency in threes can be to get into all kinds of entertainments, distractions, diversions, ways of not being with oneself. It's a kind of vicious cycle. If you take yourself to be the personality and you believe that all that you are is the surface of yourself, then it's really terrifying to look into the core because what you've assumed is that there's nothing there. And actually, that's the good news. (laughs) But it looks like really bad news from the surface. It looks like deficient emptiness. Something is wrong here. I'm missing something. Something is absent at the core of me, which is a reflection of a very deep spiritual truth that in Buddhism is spoken of as shunyata, the void, emptiness, as one of the characteristics of our deepest nature. The fact that who and what we are is absolutely devoid of ultimate existence and at the same time exists, which is the great mystery of our beingness, and in fact is a palpable presence that as we get in touch with it leads us to feel complete and whole and fulfilled and at peace and blissful and all of those other wonderful deep states that really is the goal of each of the enneotypes. That's what they're after. Yes. Um, let's let's pass the mic. You've undoubtedly got great questions. Over there. So if everyone this weekend can be patient and wait for the mic as we go on. Uh, that would be great. Then everybody can hear what you're saying. Is it getting warm in here? Yes. yes. Okay. So maybe we can do something about that. Okay. Yes. What's your question? This is not a profound question, but a question of clarification. Sure. You said threes can shape shift. And then did I hear you say that sixes lie as a way to defend? Did you mean threes or both sixes and threes lie as a way to defend? What I, what I mean is that the movement from six to three is one in which sixes, in order to deal with their fear, can get into lying, which is the movement to three. 
You know, so it's all very fluid. Yes, exactly. It's all very fluid. Yeah. Yeah. And yet there's a specific um, channel to that fluidity for each of the enneotypes. There's a predictable movement. Okay? Yes. Uh, either wait for the mic or I'll just... Yeah, yeah, let's wait for the mic. Okay, I, my name's Alexis. Um, I guess my question is then, and I'm sure that you'll get into it more, but um, then how to kind of differentiate. For a really long time, I felt I was a six because I feel that I'm a nine, but I go to six in distress. So I think where I get confused is um, what's central, what's core. Right, what's core. And yeah. I think it helped when you were saying, when you were describing how six goes to three, and then that just didn't quite feel... Okay, that doesn't quite fit. So mm -hmm. maybe that's the way? Yeah, that's part of it. I think that if you're unclear about what your enneotype, I think that understanding the inner flow is helpful to really nail it. Because if you can't relate to what I'm describing in terms of a defensive move or as we go on movement to the heart point, then it's first of all, it's unlikely that you're that type. And it might help you really get clear on where you belong. And then I guess the second part of that question is then six, or I'm sorry, nine moving to three in the other direction mm -hmm. is what you're saying of really embracing and getting in touch with the inner emptiness It's in a liberatory way. I'll get there. Okay. I'll get there. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to break down this, the flow and the movement forward and backward in little pieces so that you can digest each part of it. And then we'll put the whole pattern together at the end of the weekend. So, yeah, actually, why don't, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I may have missed it, but what did you say was the blind spot of the six? The blind spot of sixes is that, uh, is the conviction that we are this body. It's the deepest identification we have in the personality. And it's central to all of the enneotypes. Right. The, the blind spots on the inner triangle are core ones. They're blind spots that each of the enneotypes share. And as, so in other words, as long as you have an ego and you take yourself to be that, deep down at the root, you are believing that you are your body. You're identified with it. And, and the reason I say that is that um, we, we make a... Um, because our bodies are separate from every other form, we make this very interesting deduction from that. And it's not, a, it's not something we think through as young infants. It's something that we pre-consciously start to form 
which is that if my body is separate from my mom's body and from every other thing, from my crib, from my teddy bear, blah, 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 you know, when we start to recognize that, we start to believe that I am separate. I am ultimately separate. And that's the core of the ego structure, the fundamentally separate sense of self. And so all of the spiritual work that we do is about working through, from the angle of six, working through that basic misunderstanding or blind spot about reality, our reality. Okay. Yeah, when, um, when I read Naranjo and also <coughs> listening to you now, um, there's an implication or maybe a direct statement that that an idiotype is almost a type of pathology that is, uh, that is uh, something that <coughs> obstructs you or keeps you from being in connection with your true self. Um, might there be a sense also in which an idiotype is just a persona that we put on in order to engage in the interactions of daily life? It goes much deeper than a, just a persona. <coughs> The persona that we put on to deal with daily life is part of it, but the deeper levels of it are convictions about ourselves and about reality, most of which are unconscious, and most of which formed pre-consciously. So I'm not saying that our enneotype is a form of pathology. And it's a good clarification. What I'm saying is that our enneotype is part of being a normal neurotic. <laughs> Which is simply the truth of our situation. If we're not realized, we are living in the deluded world of the personality. Doesn't make it bad, doesn't make it sick doesn't make it crazy, it's just how things are. And this is what we're dealing with as we work on ourselves. So our, the development of an enneotype and a stable ego identity is a developmental achievement. It's a wonderful achievement for us as human beings. But most of us tend to stop there without taking the next step. That, okay, with this wonderful achievement of an enneotype, how can I find out what I'm missing when I'm taking the world to be only that? You see? So I think it's really important not to see your enneotype as a bad thing. You know, something that your superego gets on your case about. It, it's just how things are in the world of the personality, which is the world that probably 99.9% of humanity is abiding in, if I'm being um, generous. <laughs> That's what we're dealing with. Yes. <coughs> Are you saying that there's a both and in the idea of stress that you can, that we sometimes both move into more defensive 
strategies and break down and open up into the deeper, more decompensated Exactly. Space. Exactly. Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Can I expand on that a little bit? Because it sounded like a... Uh, you were painting the picture of the movement from nine to three, nine to six to three, almost as a vortex moving downward into increasing defensiveness and endarkenment, as you said. And the other side of it is the the hitting the wall sort of phenomenon of error, yes, of ignorance, of endarkenment. That that's sort of like the uh, place where things are stripped away. Is is it something? Is that? I'm not quite clear on what you're saying or asking. Um, yeah, I was wondering where this, where, where this vortex of error ends, where it leads. But, but I think you're getting, you'll well, get to that. Well, where it leads is to understanding that if you're attempting to find, the, the simple answer, if you're attempting to find completeness and happiness on the level of the personality through identification with your ego and its strategies, it's not going to work. That's the simple answer. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a shameful thing. It's just the truth of it. So if you understand that movement that each of us makes around the inner triangle, and you begin to get, oh, maybe this isn't working, right? then you've got a huge... Um, advantage to finding out what really does work. How can I relate to myself and my process in a different way that's going to lead me to what I truly want? Yeah. So basically as we're talking about the defensive point, we're talking about our strategies that don't work very well to get us what we want. And yet, we find ourselves doing them because we think that we have to. This is what's going to work for me. This will make things better for me. All right, so looking at the movement from six to three, if I achieve more, if I get more recognition, if I'm more accomplished, if I amass more wealth and so on, then I'm going to feel better about myself. Right? How often does that work? Maybe temporarily. Which is not to say that doing all those things isn't important, but it's what we're doing them for that makes the difference. Okay? Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, please. Does a, counter, does a counterphobic six move to nine in the same way? Um, move to three. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. move to three in is, the same is way. Is the movement to three in the same way? Yeah. In fact, counterphobic sixes would use lying about their fear, the fact that they're afraid, as a way of defending against the fear more completely, convincing others, I'm not afraid. Let me show you the many ways in which I'm not afraid. Let me demonstrate that. I'll prove it. I'll make it really graphic. 
You know, whereas a more phobic six in the movement to three is like, no, no, I didn't really say that. That wasn't what I meant. No, you know, kind of rolling over and saying, no, don't pick on me. Don't, don't attack me for that. It's that kind of movement. I just wanted to hear a little bit more about um, the three moving to nine for um, important personal reasons, <laughs> um, <laughs> which have just been revealed. Um, <laughs> I'm just happy to be here working on myself. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And, and I've been, I have been looking at it sort of, um, I, I've been working with trying not to be punitive with myself yeah. when I go to nine, because I absolutely disintegrate and go there. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying even not to use the word disintegrate, because that's sort of, you know, pejorative as well. Yeah, you know, I don't at, think that's a useful It's not useful. concept. Right, yeah. right. So I'd love to hear just a little bit more about what that looks like as well. Well, um, it, it, it's, it ultimately boils down to a tendency to distract oneself away from what you're feeling in particular, away from your edges, your boundaries, your physical limits. You know, all of that pushing that threes do increases the difficulty in tuning in. What are my limits? You know, when am I tired? Even knowing that. What's enough? Um, how many accomplishments do I need? How, how, how much do I need to keep doing? Right? So the more you keep going in that, the more that you're distracting yourself from any capacity to tune into an inner barometer, which is a lot of what I see as the challenge for threes. It's developing the capacity to know where their edges are, where their limits are, what they really feel about things versus what somebody else, what's going to work with somebody else, you know, what, versus the image that's being presented. Well, as we'll see, that's actually the core of nine. Um, the core of nine is the achievement motivation. This is a succinct way of saying it, but we'll talk more about that when we get to the heart point. So at nine, what you have is either laziness, not doing stuff, or a lot of compulsive busyness which is designed to distract oneself from paying attention. What I'm saying is that when threes get so identified with the doing, and there's so much doing and so much activity, that basically they're moving to nine. And they're going more to sleep on themselves. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, when you say sleepiness and laziness, it's really not um, 
physical. It's really, it's like a spiritual, psychological sleepiness. Like a kind of, when you say falling asleep on yourself, it's just kind of tuning out. That's what you're referring to. Yes, yes. It gets confusing. I think I, I keep hearing the word laziness and thinking, oh, it's like a, like a slothy kind of, um, and yeah. it hasn't been my experience of nines. No. For some nines, more. there is that kind of, um, that difficulty getting moving. Right? The elephant, uh, the, the elephant is the animal for point nine. And elephants have great difficulty getting going because of their great mass and a lot of trouble stopping because of their great mass. Right? And that's how nines are. Some nines sit more in the difficulty of getting going and figuring out what's important what's the necessary thing that they need to do, attuning to that and then doing it. Other nines stay very, very busy and there's an inertia to their doing, but they're completely out of touch with whether it's the essential thing that needs to be done or not. And definitely they're out of touch with themselves. Yes. Thank you for being here today. Welcome. Um, I have a question on the Enneagram types. Um, first of all, are we born with an Enneagram type? And how are we influenced? How is the Enneagram type influenced by our upbringing, our conditioning with parents who other people around us? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, let's for instance, a six, right, a fear type, is around parents who are very fearful. Mm -hmm. So how is that going to influence? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. The way that I understand it, it's a whole gestalt. And the question you're asking is really about nature versus nurture. The theory in the Enneagram that came down from Ichazo is that we're born sensitive to one holy idea, which means that we come in with a predisposition to become a particular enneotype. And because of that, we filter our childhood experiences through that particular tendency. So it's difficult to know, like they're, they're definitely typical childhood scenarios that you'll hear about each of the types. And the question I always have in my mind is, was that really what happened, or is that the way the person interpreted what happened? Right. So we have childhood influences that affect us in many ways, and we have a basic tendency to take those influences and form a particular view of reality that we come in with. Could I just... So it's both. Could I just ask a follow-up to that? Sure. If you um, have experienced definite trauma, where yeah. it's not, you know, a, truly a subjective thing, but <clears throat> it could be, right. you know, factually... Yes. Documented. Yes. Um, 
how does that then uh, play out with the uh, predisposition towards a certain enneotype? The way that you deal with it and the way you interpret that trauma is going to be according to your predisposition to be a particular type. So you would be that type no matter what, yeah. trauma or not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Right there. Can, can you just hang on? People can't hear if you don't have the mic. Sorry about that. Okay. So you were talking about sixes and the line as they move to three. Would that also be the deceit of the three then? Is that where that comes from? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Deceiving others, deceiving oneself about what I really feel, what I believe, what's true for me. Uh, there's a basic kind of um, loss of one's own reality at point three. A loss of in-touchness with it. Or a using it. And it depends on, it depends on the degree of asleepness of a three. How out of touch they are with themselves. But for all three, all threes, it's difficult to discriminate who I am from what I do and what I present to other people. Um, so you, I was, I'm a big note taker. I don't know what type, if that is, I, I'm sure it's because of some type, but I'm not sure which type it is yet. But anyway, the, um, it I depends was, on your motivation. Right. There you go. Let's just complicate things. Um, so I was, I was writing down the way you deal with an interpretive events, traumas or good things. First I wrote determined by your type. And then I thought, well, are, because that's what I heard you saying, but then I crossed that out and wrote, are, is influenced by your type. And I wonder No, it's which... interpreted through... It, it's like we interpret the events of our early childhood through a particular lens. Okay, so it's not... But I guess the, the, it's, a, it's another iteration of the question before. So I'm wondering, like, okay, I, um, I have a certain kind of family with a very dominant eight, let's say, and but I come in as a two. I'm just making this up. Okay. Um, you know, how is my two-ness influenced by that eightness? Or, and, I go to a certain kind of school or I go into a certain profession where I'm told that, you know, I need to think in a certain way, which is characteristic of a type that I'm not, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, how does all of that kind <clears throat> of go together? Because I had my colleagues at work take the test, and one of them said, well, it depends on if I'm taking it as a professional or as a person, because he said he had very, very different answers to the questions. So, yeah. Um, so that's really an example of morphing, which is what we're talking about at point three, into presenting a particular persona, which is what you were talking about, right? Given a particular situation psychologically things function more deeply it's not that we're simply presenting a persona you see we actually believe it this is who I am this is what I am so 
in terms of determining your enneotype, it has to do with what you really believe about reality and about yourself and how you function within it. So it, it's more fundamental than how we shapeshift to fit a given situation. So in the hypothetical example that you were using, if your proclivity is to become a two and your father's an eight, let's say, there's going to be a very strong tendency to subordinate yourself to that eight father and to flatter them and to, you know, kiss their ass and all that stuff <laughs> as a survival mechanism. So each type would have its own survival mechanism in relation to whoever it finds in its yeah. Yeah. Um, family or whatever. Right, right, right. You see, part of the, part, if, if you consider that in families that have like five or six kids or more or, you know, four or five, six kids, usually all of those four, five, six kids are not the same enneotype, even though they had the same parent. So how do we make sense of that? Right? The, the way that we can make sense of that is they came in with a predisposition. And if you look at very young children, you know, they come in with their own presence. They come in with their own character. Things happen and those things get amplified and shaped and you know, brought out and other stuff gets suppressed. But we really come in as our own person to a great extent. We're not just sort of this formless clay that gets completely molded by everything that happens to us, the way that we tend to think psychologically. So then We're not blank slates. Right. So then with the, uh, with the profession idea, I'm talking specifically like I went to law school and I saw my, all of my peers change in very fundamental ways. Um, you know, in terms of how they were thinking and how they were relating and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is, even though it appears like there's a patina of law lawyer over all of us, lawyerness, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, we're st which may be a particular type. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it may be a, you're learning to think like a six thinks, or I'm just, you know, I don't yeah. know the numbers, so I'm yeah, this yeah. Up. But but still, or an even eight. though you've yeah, or, okay, an eight. Yeah. Even though you've gotten this like smash down right. of an eight, um, you still are relate like I'd still relate to it as a four. Yeah. Or yeah, and if you scratch the surface under that patina, under that persona, you're going to find characteristics of the person's fundamental enneotype. That's very helpful, thank you. Yeah. It can be hard to find after a while, especially if the person's a three and they've totally morphed into lawyerhood. Yeah. Okay. Up here, one more question. Can you give an example of a trauma and how different enneotypes would relate totally different to the same trauma. Like, she had brought that up, so a more, a more actual example. Okay. Thank you. So, we've been focusing on the inner triangle, so I'll stay there, right? 
So if a nine experiences some trauma in childhood, some deep trauma, whether it's a molestation or abuse or anything else that we consider traumatic, the tendency of a nine is to interpret that as, oh, I don't really matter here. I'm just an object. And I better just go to sleep on what I'm experiencing. I'm just going to tune out. And of course, that's a basic strategy for all of us to dissociate in a trauma or a shocking situation, right? But that's going to be the core way that a nine would cope with that. And of course, that could get embellished. But basically, they're going to be decisions about reality that are put into place because, because of it that boil down to, I don't really matter. And I need to fade into the background. And that's going to be the safest thing for me to do. And I shouldn't call too much attention to myself. If a six, on the other hand, experiences a trauma, what they're going to be left with is a deepened conviction that the world is a frightening, dangerous place and I have to be vigilant for danger. So a six develops and a trauma would amplify what Hamid has called a defensive suspiciousness in a six. So a kind of hypervigilance. Where is the danger going to come? The conviction that it's going to come. It will come. Sixes are unsure about everything else, but they know <laughs> it's a dog-eat-dog-out world out there, and if I don't watch out, I'm going to get eaten. They know that. Right? If a three experiences a trauma, the sense is, oh, I'm going to invent myself. I'm going to appear in whatever way is necessary for me to get what I want in the world. So I will become what somebody else wants to see so that I'm not endangered in the same kind of way. Or I will achieve so much that nobody can mess with me again. I'll get so much recognition, you know, like that, you see. And so each of the types, but because we've been focusing on the triangle, and I don't think we're going to get farther than that this morning, which is fine, um, would interpret that trauma in different ways. You see, each of the types has a fundamental belief about reality that's distorted. It's what Naranjo calls a cognitive skew. Uh, or a cognitive distortion, which boils down to a mistaken view of reality, or in spiritual terms, an illusion about how reality is, both inner and outer. So everything gets filtered through that particular cognitive distortion. And that's really technically what we call the fixation in the Enneagram. It's the fixed conviction about reality. So to really get what your enneotype is, 
in time, you need to see how everything kind of boils down to a basic take on reality, both inner and outer. And the hard part about knowing exactly what that is, is that, as I said, it tends to be pretty unconscious for most of us. You know, until we come to a certain point and we say, oh my God, this is the basic belief I'm operating under, and I always have. You know, but that takes lots of digging, lots of, what I mean by that is lots of inner exploration to find out what the deep, fundamental core of what I've decided about reality is and that I'm operating from, if I'm not operating from the ground of being. Right. So, and that, that gets into the whole realm of the holy ideas, which I'm not getting into that much this weekend, but it's definitely part of the picture. Okay, anything else for the moment? All right, I think it's time to do a little digesting with where we've gotten so far. We've talked about the movement around the inner triangle. And as I said, the, that movement and what each of those points represent is fundamental, central central to all of the other types not included in the inner circle, the other six types, as well as those that are part of the inner triangle. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that the tendency to lose touch with the full dimensionality of what we are, the belief which is what happens at point nine, and the belief that I'm not fundamentally significant, I don't have inherent value and worth, which is also central at point nine, is fundamental to every enneotype. Likewise, what six represents, which is the identification with our separate body and our separate consciousness as who and what we are, which therefore, if we believe that, it's inevitable that we're at risk. Just living is being at risk. Now, if I am this ultimately separate individual that is destructible, that can be hurt, destroyed, as my body can, then inevitably life is dangerous. Life is a matter of trying to cope with how to stay alive. That's common to all of us. Right? Also what's represented at point three, which is believing that I am what I do, that I am my enneotype. I am the pattern that moves inside of my psyche. And I am the pattern of what I do in my life. 
That's central to point three, and that's something that all of us share. So I think for our beginning exploration here, and over the course of the weekend, I'm going to ask you to look into yourself and to see what of what I've been talking about makes sense to you. What, what do you find in your own experience about this? Right? So let's start with a beginning exploration. I'd like you to get into groups of three. And for 15 minutes each, I'd like you to each take turns exploring these three points and how you relate to them. In other words, how you find those within your own psyche. So what of what I've just been talking about do you relate to? And there might be one of these points that feels stronger for you. But not necessarily. All, we have all of them. So what I'd really like you to do as much as possible is to see how you go to sleep on yourself, to see how your fear operates, and to see how you present an image to cope with all of that. And I'd like for each of you to speak to it. And, and in the kinds of exercises and explorations that we're going to be doing, the most fruitful way for your own self-understanding is not to simply talk theory, not to simply talk about what you know with your mind, but to let yourself feel into these questions. What do I relate to on a felt sense here? What, what really do I feel about these questions? Can I feel the way in which I go to sleep to myself? The way in which I don't believe I have value? What's the felt sense of that? What's the ways in which my existential fear expresses itself? How do I feel that? And how do I morph and shapeshift and deceive myself and others about what's really happening with me. How do I do that? What's the, and I'm, I'm just scratching the surface on what each of these points represents. So let yourself really feel into them. They're, 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 they're keys. They're doorways. So you may have a whole lot more to say than I have about those three points, and I hope you do. Right? So I'd like you to take turns. This is not, these are not dialogues, these are monologues. So that each of you has an opportunity to speak your truth in the presence of two others who are paying attention to you. So your job as you're listening to others is to bring as much presence as you possibly can to the other's inquiry, to listening, to being there for the other. And I think that you'll find over the weekend that the extent to which you're really present with and for each other 
is the extent to which it feels really safe to go deeper. So give that gift, that generosity of your own presence to each other as you listen. As you speak, see if you can not tell a story, not be concerned about how you're impressing the others, you know. If you have something important or good or original to say, just say what's so for you, as much as you can. And of course, I want you to, to modulate how much feels okay to speak. You're probably going to be working with strangers, so pace yourselves. Don't overexpose in ways that don't feel safe for you. Um, and at the same time, the more willing you are to let yourself be as completely with your truth as possible, the more you're going to benefit. And then I'd like you to, um, let's see, how should we do this? Uh, spend 10 minutes at the end having a group discussion about how that was for the three of you. So you each have 15 minutes, and then you'll have 10 minutes together as a group. So you've got 55 minutes. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, folks. Okay, hang on. A moment of silence, please. Hello. Hello. Shh. Thank you. So the question was, could I reiterate the question? What I'm asking you to look at is what you identify with and find in yourself on the inner triangle. That's the long and the short of the question. Yes. For 15 minutes, you're going to talk. Okay. So what I'd like you to do is have one person timing in your triad. You have that 15 minutes, no more and no less. And really try to stay to no more and no less. Because if we get fuzzy about the more, we're going to not have a lot of time to be together. So keep, keep your timing tight. And if you feel like you have nothing more to say, just sit. Sit in silence and see what happens. I have never seen it happen <laughs> that there isn't something else that comes. I assure you. And sometimes when you reach that point where it feels like there's nothing else, that's when something really interesting comes. Okay? And so then we'll come back in an hour, and we'll have a sharing together about what happened. Okay. <laughs>